Praise God. It's exciting to see people coming up through the church and learning and growing here and uh, then going out into the world. And so please continue to be praying for them and support them in any way that you can. I know some of you are new today, so I'll introduce myself. My name is Adam. I'm the senior pastor here at First Free Church. Um, we have an exciting new series that I'm going to tell you about in just a minute. But before I do, I want to give you a couple of um, just announcements and, and notes that may be useful for you to have some things that are going on around here. First and foremost is just the fact that we are dealing with what looks like the beginning maybe of another surge of COVID cases, and it's definitely causing problems, obviously, in our politics and in our community, but we even have have a couple of people, my wife told me this morning, who are in the hospital right now with some pretty severe complications from COVID. I'm, I don't have permission to share their name, so I'm not going to say it, but just be praying for our community, for our church, for the people that are struggling with this right now, for the, the couple that's in our church, that both of them have severe cases of COVID and are in the hospital right now and really struggling with it. And some of you may know who they are. Um, be in prayer. I know this is a really challenging time for us, and it feels very discouraging, doesn't it? To be going, it feels like back into a difficult time. It reminds me of last year around this time when we had so many people watching online and very few people in the room. And last week, actually, our online attendance outnumbered our in-person attendance three to one. And it just feels like, oh, are we going back into another season of where we're going to have to be separated from each other? And the reality is, I don't know. I don't know what comes as we go into the fall and into the winter. All I know is that we can stay united as Christians and followers of Jesus, that we can continue to worship together, even if for some reason we can't all be in this room at the same time. And so whatever happens, I just want to encourage you to, to keep an undivided mindset, to keep things in perspective, to focus on the main things. And if we have to worship separately, if we have to gather in groups and homes, if we have to gather in other places uh, in order to make this work, then let's do it. And let's make sure that we're focusing on the right things, the gospel of Jesus Christ, what he's done for us, what he, what he wants to do for other people and chooses to make us his ambassadors for. That is my prayer for you. I hope that you will join us in, in carrying that message forward with whatever comes next, as challenging as it may be. And I just want to say, I, I, this church has done a wonderful job with that. You know, this has been such a divisive time around the country and as, as challenging as do we wear masks or not wear masks, vaccines or no vaccines, and all of those issues have been social distancing and all of that. We really have not seen um, tremendous strife or division over those things here. And I just want to thank you for that and praise God for that because I think his hand of protection has been on us in a really difficult time where we've seen a lot of pastors quit last year, way more than normal. A lot of churches split. A lot of churches uh, close more than would normally happen. And so praise God, he continues to bless here and continues to keep us united as a body of Christ. And we want to see that continue. Well, um, another thing I want to let you know about is that on August 22nd, we are going to plan an additional business meeting here. And that's because we need to add a couple of people to our nominating committee. We've got a couple who are stepping down. And so we need to add a couple of people to that. You'll get an email this week so that you can fill out a nomination form if you want to nominate someone for that committee. But this is one of the ways we do things at our church, how we find future elders and deacons and other positions in the church. So if you want to nominate someone for the nominating committee, then uh, you can do that this week and we will have a business meeting on August 22nd in between the services to be able to vote on them and get everything started for next year. We are at the start 
of a brand new series. This series has been a long time in the making. We actually wanted to launch this series a year ago. We had special guests lined up to come in and be a part of this series, and we had to pull back on it because of some challenges that were going on in our church at that time that really took up all of our elder board's time, and we had to push pause, and now we are ready to go again. And it's actually a good thing that we waited because we got the benefit of so much more insight and wisdom as more people were reading and researching and writing books and helping to give guidance to Christians on how to face issues of justice in our country and around the world. And so we're really blessed to have a special guest speaker with us today to cover that topic. But I just wanna give us a little bit of an intro to this series because it's called Justice in the Bible. And we are going to talk about issues of social justice. We are gonna talk about some very hot button controversial topics. And I want to encourage you as, as a church that we've talked about many times to keep an undivided mindset. The reality is that probably there will be some things said from the stage today and over the next six weeks that you will disagree with. At least some of you will disagree with. And that is bound to happen. We're gonna have different views, different opinions, different perspectives. We all come from different backgrounds and experiences and, and some, to some extent different worldviews a little bit. And so we need to maintain a gracious spirit with each other even as we have these conversations. Not just with what's said from the stage here, but the conversations we have with each other afterward because that's where this is really gonna show up. As we talk with other people who have different views, are we going to assume the worst about them? Are we going to assume their motives? Or are we going to give them the benefit of the doubt and treat them like a, a brother or sister in Christ? Or at the very least, someone who's made in the image of God, who we are gonna respect and be gracious with even when we disagree? Can we have conversations about issues of justice without them devolving into arguments and, and frustration and attacking the other person? Can we just have good conversations about these things? And that is what we're gonna be helped with today. Our speaker today is Dr. Thaddeus Williams. He's a professor of theology at Biola University. He's also taught jurisprudence and ethics and philosophy and a bunch of other things around the world. He wrote a book several months ago called Confronting Injustice Without Compromising Truth. He would have had a bunch of them available today, except he already sold out of the copies he would have brought. So you can get it on Amazon, and I sent all of you a link this week where you can go and buy that book on Amazon. It's a fantastic book. I encourage you all to get it because you're gonna hear a version of it today, but you're gonna get so much more information if you actually go and get the book and read it. He is gonna share with us today a framework that will help set us up for the rest of this series. How can we have a common language? How can we talk about these things without it turning into a shouting match, but actually have productive conversations where we might have to agree to disagree on some things, but we can agree on the things that matter most. So we're going to play a video for you that our communications department created that's gonna introduce this whole new series. And then Dr. Thaddeus Williams is gonna come up and share with us. Oh, and before, before we play that video, one more thing. Today at 1.30 in our activity center is going to be a question and answer session where Dr. Williams is gonna be there and he is gonna answer whatever questions you want to ask. And if you wanna ask a question ahead of time, you can do that at pastor at efree.org. Just send an email to pastor at efree.org and we will make sure that we are able to cover as many of those questions as possible at 1.30 today. So grab some lunch, either go out to eat or bring your lunch to the corner park for, for the picnic time and then join us in the activity center at 1.30. All right, let's play that video, and then we'll welcome Dr. Williams. Good morning, church. How you guys doing? Well, I'm Thaddeus Williams. It's a joy to be with you all the way from sunny Southern California. Uh, a lot of people ask, you know, why would you travel the country and write a book about 
social justice, the most controversial powder keg, combustible question of our day? And just the short answer to that question is I'm, I'm kind of an idiot. Uh, I just don't know any better. Um, but seriously, the, the longer answer is, you know, I've been teaching for a long time. I teach at Biola University, been in ministry for years and years. And I'd say for 20 years, the number one question I got was some version of the problem of evil. If God is so good, why is the universe so messed up? But in the last five years, that's changed. There's been a new first, there's been a new gold medalist when it comes to the question I'm asked the most, and that is, in some form, how as Christians do we think through the social justice controversies of our age? So as we're getting into these potentially divisive questions, let me just start us off with a quick word of prayer. Uh, great God, you are a God of justice. You are just and perfect in all your ways, as Deuteronomy 32 says. And so we want to be a people, we want to be a community, we want to be a church that reflects something of your justice to the watching world. But Lord, as you know, the, the fact is these days there are versions of justice floating around that are deeply incompatible with what you say in Scripture. And so, Lord, would you help us to be discerning? Would you help us to um, discern between real justice and its counterfeits? And my prayer for this community is that in the, the coming year, that it would be a community marked by doing true justice your way. We pray this in Christ's name and for his glory. Amen. All right, well, the word social, if you put it next to the word justice, is sort of like throwing Mentos into a Diet Coke. <laughs> it's explosive. It's an explosive word combination. And so I want to start this conversation where we should start, which is with the scriptures. I just want to walk you through a few passages that show us that justice is not a divine suggestion. Justice is a divine command. You see this in Jeremiah 22, verse 3. Do justice and righteousness deliver from the hand of the oppressor him who has been robbed. I'm sure most of you have heard Micah 6, 8. It's what does the Lord suggest of you but to do justice? Nope, I butchered that, didn't I? It's not what does the Lord suggest of you if you get around to it, if you got some spare time. The text says, what does the Lord, help me out, require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. You see in Isaiah 58 that doing justice brings a certain brightness, a certain glow, a certain blessing into our lives. The text says, then shall your light break forth like the dawn and your healing shall spring up speedily if, listen to this, you pour yourself out for the hungry. If you satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then shall your light rise in the darkness and your gloom be as noonday. Scripture takes us even farther. It actually says that the doing of justice is what it means to know 
God. Jeremiah 22, verse 16 says, he judged the cause of the poor and needy, then it was well. Is not this what it means to know me, declares the Lord. Doing justice equals knowing God in Jeremiah 22. You see in Isaiah chapter one, it sort of flips it around and highlights the fact that a failure to do justice can actually hamper our prayer lives and sever our connection with God. The text says, when you spread out your hands, God speaking here, he says, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen because your hands are full of blood. So cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, and plead the widow's cause. There's a passage in Jeremiah chapter seven, verse five, very simple, where it says, truly execute justice. Now, zoom in on those words with me for a second. Truly execute justice. A, a command like that implies that there are untrue ways to execute justice. There are ways where we think we're helping when we're actually hurting. And so to frame our conversation today, our Q&A a little later today, if you can make it, and the next four or five weeks of the series, I want us to start with a clear-cut distinction between what we might call social justice A, on the one hand, that's the kind that's biblically compatible, and social justice B, on the other hand, the kind we should be very cautious of. So think social justice A, A for awesome, social justice B, B for bad. <laughs> Simple way to remember it. So what do I mean when I say social justice A? Well, to answer that question, I want us as a church to hop into our DeLorean, get our flux capacitors fluxing, generate 1.21 gigawatts, go 88 miles an hour, and we are gonna whisk away through church history. I'm gonna give you kind of a light speed journey of our brothers and sisters through church history who were obeying all those biblical commands that I just read. So here we go, 88 miles an hour, whoosh, we're in the first century. There was, in the Roman Empire, what, what was a form of infanticide where little babies, little tiny image bearers of God who were unwanted were thrown into literal human dumps outside of most major cities in the Roman Empire. Unwanted kids were literally cast away like garbage. There was a name for those unwanted image bearers. They were called, in Greek, the word was momos, which translates uh, to blemished, unwanted, outcast. Now, in Ephesians chapter one, Paul starts off what is literally the longest run-on sentence in the entire Bible. It's 205 words in the original Greek before Paul just pauses and catches his breath. And right at the beginning of the longest sentence in scripture, Paul says, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms. He's called us to be holy and blameless. Some translations, instead of blameless, will say unblemished. But the word there in Greek, it's this little word, a beautiful word, amomos, amomos. So the unwanted, the, the castaways, were called momos. You're blemished, you're unwanted, nobody loves you. And Paul's saying, 
Praise be to the God and Father, Father with a capital F, not your lowercase f Father who may have tossed you aside like garbage, but your capital F Father has called you, ah, Momos, you are unblemished, you are wanted, you are cherished, and then Paul follows it with this image of adoption. You're now invited into God's family as a cherished son, as a cherished daughter. So what did our brothers and sisters in the first century do once they understood that core gospel truth? They went to the literal human dumps to take society's unwanted, society's momos, and rebrand them as the Amomos and welcome them and adopt them into their homes as cherished sons and daughters. And they did that to such an extent, this just blows my mind, that within two generations, the human dump system all around the Roman Empire had been completely abolished by our brothers and sisters. They did it not in spite of, but precisely because of their deep understanding of the gospel. Isn't that inspiring? That's what I'm getting at when I talk about social justice, A, how the gospel spills over into the doing of justice, biblical justice in society. Well, let's hop back into our DeLorean. Let's whisk away uh, to the 18th and 19th century. You have slavery in China. You have slavery in India. There was more slaves in India than in the entire Western Hemisphere. According to historians, you have slavery in the Ottoman Empire, slavery in Africa, slavery in Brazil, slavery in America, slavery in the UK. And along come some of our brothers and sisters who took those passages I just read to you seriously. So in America, you have folks like Fred Douglas, Frederick Douglass and Harriet Tubman and Sojourner Truth, who not in spite of, but precisely because they understood the gospel, it led them to help abolish the slave trade in the United States. That's social justice A. Over in the UK, you have um, brothers and sisters like William Wilberforce and the Clapham sect. And they started reading their Bibles and saying, wait a second, scripture's crystal clear that everybody bears God's image. Therefore, everybody has irreducible worth, dignity, and value. So how on earth are we justifying treating people like property? And so it was precisely because of people reading their Bibles that ultimately Christians abolished slavery, not just in the UK and the US, but in China and in India, and in Africa, and in the Ottoman Empire. Hop back in the DeLorean, fast forward to the 20th century. There's a German college student in Munich by the name of Sophie Scholl. Has anybody heard of Sophie Scholl before? Does that ring any bells? I see one hand, two hands, massive extra credit. I'm a professor, I can give extra credit, so you all have extra credit now. Um, Sophie Scholl and her big brother Hans watched the Third Reich, the Nazis on the rise to power. And so they started something called the White Rose Society. And the White Rose Society was kind of an underground press where they were um, filling Munich and Germany with these leaflets exposing Hitler as a false messiah, exposing Nazism as an ideology of hate. 
And ultimately, they paid for it with their lives. To wave the banner that Jesus, not Hitler, is Lord. Just like back in the second and third century when our brothers and sisters paid for it with their lives to say Jesus, not Caesar, is Lord. In fact, there's a little phrase that pops up in the book of Revelation where you had to, if you were a Roman citizen, once a year you had to go outside with a little pinch of incense and you had to burn it publicly and shout, Axios I ho kurios kai ho theos, which meant, worthy art thou Caesar, our Lord and God. You had to worship a Caesar. Well, in the book of Revelation, John picks up on that language. Not to describe the Caesar, but to describe Jesus. To say, Jesus, not Caesar, is Lord. That's what our brothers and sisters became lion lunch for back in the first and second centuries. So that same rally cry, Jesus, not Caesar, is Lord, is what ultimately led to Sophie Scholl, her brother, and the White Rose Society being exterminated by Nazis. Think of Dietrich Bonhoeffer and the resistance movement. All these examples, I'm just trying to flesh out for you that as Christians, we have a legacy of true, beautiful, compelling justice-seeking to carry on into the 21st century. Now, what I just said, you don't hear much because the running narrative is, oh, Christians, you guys are always on the wrong side of history, right? So I want to inspire you with this rich biblical legacy of justice-seeking that as we take our DeLorean back to the present tense, is still alive and well. In fact, there was a study done just two years ago that found that Christians in the US outpace by a long shot every other demographic when it comes to giving money to the poor, giving resources to the poor, leaving their comfort zones and traveling the world to serve and uplift the poor. Christians are the first place by a long shot. In fact, there was a study from two years ago by a secular research organization called PRRI that just went to the city of Philadelphia, and they looked at 12 congregations, just 12 faith communities there in Philadelphia, and they used a 54-point metric to gauge what kind of impact these faith communities were having on their surrounding neighborhoods. And what they found was jaw-dropping they found that just 12 faith communities in Philadelphia in a single year, in a 365-day cycle, generated over $50 million worth of economic benefit to their neighborhoods. <laughs> Isn't that astounding? Isn't that beautiful? And I know from talking to Pastor Adam that um, some of the things on the horizon, there's already several opportunities to get involved and do justice here in this community, um, but there's a lot of exciting things just around the corner uh, to get involved to make that kind of positive impact and take God's word seriously. God requires, not suggests, that we do justice. So that's what I'm talking about when I say social justice A. Well, what do I mean when I say social justice B? That is what is trending through our culture right now, and I want us to be discerning so we can spot the differences. Now to get at that, I, I wanna introduce you to one of my heroes uh, over the last 
year and a half, he's become a very dear friend and mentor. Uh, poke your hand in the air if you've ever heard of John Perkins. Does that name ring a bell? Extra credit, extra credit, extra credit, extra credit, extra credit. Um, John Perkins, for those of you who don't know, he's a living legend of the civil rights movement. Uh, he just celebrated about a month and a half ago his 91st birthday, uh, which I love because there's a bit of a generation gap between us. So when we, we chat, we'll FaceTime and I'll spend an hour talking to his chin. Because <laughs> there's, you know, FaceTime, it's, you know, generation technology gap. Uh, but, but he's incredibly inspiring. And, and just a bit about his story and then some of the insights that he has for us as we seek justice together. Um, he was born in Mississippi on a plantation. His mom died when he was just a baby and she died of malnutrition because she couldn't even get basic medical care. Why? Because of the melanin in her skin cells because she was black. She couldn't get basic medical care. So she dies when John is just a baby. Fast forward a few years, John's big brother comes back from World War II, decorated, Purple Heart. John goes out to the movie theater with his big bro, and his big brother gets shot down by a racist town marshal and dies in John's arms. John says, I gotta get out of Mississippi. <laughs> I'm not gonna last long here. So he moves out to California, out to Pasadena, uh, joins the civil rights movement, and he ends up thrown in prison where he's beat within inches of his life. So if anybody had a justification for being just full of rage, it would be John Perkins. But John says Jesus had a different plan for him. He came to experience the healing grace and mercy and redemption that comes through Jesus. And that set his whole life on a different trajectory where now he has spent, him with his wife Vera May, have spent 60 years preaching the gospel and bringing justice to marginalized communities. 60 years. So what does John Perkins have to say to us? Well, in the, the foreword of the book, which I was honored that he was willing to to write, he, he gives us four nuggets of insight that he's passing on to the next generation. And I just gotta say amen to all four. He says, first, start with God. God is bigger than we can imagine. We have to align ourselves with his purpose, his will, his mission to let justice roll down and bring forgiveness and love to everyone on earth. The problem of injustice, Perkins says, is a God-sized problem. So if we don't start with him first, we ain't doing justice. Amen? Second nugget of insight from Dr. Perkins. Be one in Christ. Be one in Christ. Christian brothers and sisters, black, white, brown, rich, poor, we are family. We are one blood, we are adopted by the same Father, we're saved by the same Son, filled with the same Spirit. So John Perkins goes on to say that if we give a foothold, and this is one of the marks of social justice B that we need to be aware of, if we give a foothold to any kind of tribalism that could tear down that unity, then we aren't bringing God's justice. Let me flesh that point out with one of the, the stories 
uh, that, that pops up in my book, Confronting Injustice, from a dear brother out in New York named Edwin Ramirez. Edwin Ramirez um, was a Christian, loved Jesus, and then he started getting swept up into social justice B. And one of the marks of social justice B is it divides everybody into oppressed or oppressor groups. Everybody is either oppressed or the oppressor. And how do you know which group people are in? All you gotta do is look at them. You can tell by the melanin in their skin cells which group they fall into. And so the more Edwin Ramirez began to imbibe that vision of social justice, the more he found his Sunday church experience change. He started going to, to church and looking around the room and just saying, well, I'm brown. They have less melanin. That's, that's not my brother and sister in Christ. That's my oppressor. And it got to the point for Edwin where he would show up for, for worship and just kind of stand there with a scowl and his arms folded, looking around and and every opportunity he got, he would just preach about how everything is white supremacist. And this, this ideology just overtook his entire mindset and his emotional life. And it almost destroyed his marriage. Well, as Edwin tells his story, he says that one Sunday he was visiting um, some, some rural church that was predominantly white. And he's sitting in the back, arms folded, scowling at a room full of his oppressors. And he says, for whatever reason, his eyes fell on a woman in the front pew. She was an elderly white woman. And they were singing one of Edwin's favorite hymns. And she had her, her palms stretched out to the sky, just belting it out with every fiber of her being, just worshiping. Jesus. And Edwin says in that moment, it just hit him that, wait a second, that's my sister. We're family. We've been adopted by the same father. We've been redeemed by the same son. We're inhabited by the same Holy Spirit. We're family in all these passages just began to marquee through Edwin's mind about you are one in Christ, in Christ there's neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free. That Jesus through his cross work has broken down the dividing wall of hostility and made us one. So that's what Perkins is getting at. Be one in Christ. Recognize that your first connection to everybody else in this room and everybody watching at home who loves Jesus, that's family. That's family. A third bit of insight from Dr. Perkins. He says, number three, his, his note to the next generation of biblical justice seekers is preach the gospel. We gotta keep first things first. He says, the gospel of Jesus' incarnation, his perfect life, his death as our substitute, his triumph over sin and death, that's good news for everyone. It's multicultural good news because in the blood of Jesus, we're able to truly see ourselves as one race, one blood. Perkins says, and I quote, we've got to stop playing the race game. Christ alone 
can break down the barriers of prejudice and hate that we all struggle with. There's no power greater than God's love expressed in Jesus. That's where we all find real human dignity, says Perkins. So if we replace the gospel with this or that man-made political agenda, then we ain't doing biblical justice, amen? Fourth and finally from John Perkins. He says, start with God, be one in Christ, preach the gospel, and number four, tell the truth. Without truth, Perkins says, there can be no justice. What's the ultimate standard of truth? It's not popular opinion. It's not what presidents or politicians say. It's not what your feelings say. What is the ultimate standard of truth, brothers and sisters? The word of God. The word of God is where we got to start. In Perkins' words, God's word is the standard of truth. If we're trying harder to align ourselves with the rising opinions of our day than with the Bible, then we ain't doing real justice. So there you have four nuggets of insight from the living legend of the civil rights movement, John Perkins. I wanna spend uh, the rest of the time I have with you just laying out some distinctions. Now, just a little disclaimer, there's so much here and so many controversies around white privilege and white fragility and white supremacy and so many questions about intersectionality and questions about critical race theory. These are the things that pop up into our news feeds on a daily basis. Uh, they're combustible. It's like rolling a grenade into the middle of the room. I'm just gonna let you know, I can't cover all that in the 19 minutes I have left. So show up for lunch at, after lunch at 1.30. We'll solve all of that in like, what do we have, like an hour? Yeah. Piece of cake. We'll just put a nice neat bow on top. Uh, no, but we won't be able to cover, obviously, everything uh, in, in the time that we have left. But I hope, if nothing else, this just gives you a thirst to think biblically about these questions rather than just kind of be pushed and pulled by our polarized age. And, and let me just, just camp on that point for a second with, with something in the book that I describe as the Newman effect. The Newman effect. Uh, and Pastor Adam sort of was making references to it in his introduction here. What's the Newman effect? Well, uh, two years ago, there's a viral interview. It just it basically broke the internet. An interview between a Canadian professor, psychologist named Jordan Peterson on the one side, and on the other side was uh, Channel 4 host Kathy Newman. And they were taking on all the hand grenade questions like transgenderism, uh, the gender pay gap, things like that. And Peterson would make a point, and Kathy Newman's response would be, so you're saying, which ended up becoming a huge meme over the last two years, so you're saying, and then she would fill in the blanks <clears throat> with the most damnable, cartoonish, and inflammatory interpretation possible of what Peterson was actually saying. So Peterson would make a point, and she would say, so you're saying women are just dumb and can't run top corporations? And he's like, no, <laughs> that's not what I was saying at all. He'd make another point. So you're saying that transgender activists will lead to the mass genocide of millions? And he's like, what are you talking about? Like, I didn't say any of that. So you're saying we should align our society to be like lobsters? And he's like, what? Where did you get that from? 
And the reason I bring that up is because in a sense, we're sort of all Kathy Newmans now. This is just the way in this weird cultural moment we're in that we have conversations about important topics. Let me give an example or two. Somebody says, racism is still a problem. So you're saying, there's the Newman effect kicking in. So you're saying you're basically a Marxist revolutionary who wants to overthrow the United States, and they're like, not really what I was saying. Or somebody says, you know, maybe this example that's cited as racism, maybe there's some other factors going on there other than racism that explain what we see. Oh, so you're saying you're basically a white supremacist, a neo-Nazi, you're basically the grand wizard of the KKK, and they're like, what are you talking about? I saw this just yesterday. On my Facebook feed, I, I posted a short little comment. I just finished a C.S. Lewis book called That Hideous Strength. Has anybody out there read That Hideous Strength? Automatic A if you come to Biola University. Automatic degree from Biola, there you go. Um, and, and I just made this comment. I said, if you want more insight into what's happening in this cultural moment, this is a fantastic book. That's basically the gist of of my post, well, somebody I've never met weighed in and said, um, I think I'll go to the Word of God, thank you. I don't need anything but the Word of God to understand this cultural moment. Shame on you for questioning the Word of God. And it's like, I'm recommending a book and you're doing this Kathy Newman thing of, so you're saying we shouldn't take the Bible seriously. This is, again, just the way we have conversations. Um, you think we should wear a mask during the COVID pandemic. Kathy Newman effect kicks in. So you're saying you hate freedom, <laughs> you love tyranny, you want to bow down to totalitarian government, and they're like, no, that's not really what I'm saying. I don't think we should wear a mask. So you're saying you just want more grandmas to die? Why do you hate everybody's grandmas? Right? <laughs> I'm only slightly embellishing, but this is the way we have conversations. And my encouragement, my exhortation to you as a church community is just we have to do better as Christians than playing that game because there is a sin in Scripture called slander. There's a sin in Scripture called slander, which is when I'm assuming the worst of other people's motives and then I'm going to badmouth them without evidence. So as a community, as we work through controversial issues, let's not uh, buy in to the Newman effect together. Amen? All right, so a few more differences between the two, between social justice A and social justice B. Let me just kind of run through these quickly so you get a fuller sense of the distinctions. You guys all know the famous wedding passage, 1 Corinthians 13, where Paul's listing the marks of true love, right? And in that list, you know, love is patient, love is kind. In that list, he says, love is not easily offended. Love is not easily offended. Social justice B is the opposite. Social justice B encourages you to be offended at everything. That's one way to mark the distinction. Another distinction between the two is if we're doing justice God's way, our justice pursuits will be marked by the fruit of the Spirit. What are the fruit of the Spirit? You get love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Social justice B is marked by the opposite of all of that. 
It's marked by self-righteousness. It's marked by suspicion. It's, it's marked by assuming the worst of everybody else's motives. That's one dead giveaway that you've crossed a line from social justice A to social justice B. Let me just give uh, one quick example of what I'm getting at here, how that kind of worked in reverse for one of my students. I have a, a student, he graduated just a couple years ago. Um, I have to use a pseudonym for him because if I used his real name, there's actually a pretty high probability um, he would be shot. Um, so this student we're gonna call Walt. Walt entered my freshman year Foundations of Christian Thought class at Biola University, and he just, I, I couldn't really prove it, I didn't have any hard evidence, but he just kind of seemed like a Nazi. <laughs> it's not like he asked his questions with his hand at a 45 degree angle or anything like that. There was just something about him. Uh, but I had the, the pleasure of teaching Walt from his freshman all the way through his senior year. He took me for foundations, theology one, theology two, and I just witnessed this transformation in him where he went from being marked by rage and self-righteousness and hate. By the time he graduated, he was just a different dude. Like, he even looked different. Like, what an old King James Bible would call his countenance, you know, countenance, it's like how, how your external appearance reveals the inner state. His countenance was changed. There was a certain glow about him. There was a winsomeness to him. He was marked by that Galatians 5 list of love and peace and patience and kindness. And so when I was writing the book, I, I reached out to Walt, in quotes, and I wrote what was the single hardest email of my career. Hey, Walt, how you doing, brother? It's been a while, hope you're well. Hey, by any chance, um, you know when you took my Foundations of Christian Thought class a few years ago, were you, oh, I don't know, a Nazi? <laughs> and follow-up question, by any chance did God set you free from that ideology of hate? With quivering finger, I hit send, thinking, if I'm wrong, I am super wrong. Um, so heart palpitations going on, I hit send, and thank God, uh, Walt reaches out to me that same day, and he says, that's exactly my story. It's exactly my story. He said he, he got back from um, a tour in, serving in the military, and he felt like all of culture was saying, white men are the devil. And so he basically said, well, if we're gonna play this identity politics game and divvy everybody by their skin color, then okay, I'll play that game and I'll win. And so he joined a, a neo-Nazi um, group, which is why he had to change his name when he told his story in the book, um, changed his name to Walt, um, because some of his ex-comrades would, would come for him if they knew his story. So, so he goes to Biola University and he starts deprogramming all of that neo-Nazi propaganda with, and replacing it with scripture. And so the way he explained it to me, he said certain doctrines, like at the very beginning of the Bible, the image of God that everybody bears, everybody, you realize like how am I gonna think I'm 
better than somebody who has more melanin in their skin cells when we're both image bearers of God. It just doesn't compute. Racism doesn't make any biblical sense. He thought that passages like Romans, the opening of Romans, Paul starts with this argument where he says, hey, Jews, you have the law and you break it, so you're sinners and you need a redeemer. You need grace. You need redemption through Jesus. But hey, non-Jews, you know, you Gentiles, you don't get off the hook. You have the law that God wrote in your hearts and you break that. So you need a redeemer. You need grace. You need forgiveness. You're a sinner. And his argument in those first two chapters crescendos in chapter three with the passage I'm sure all of you have heard and probably memorized. Help me out. All have sins and fallen short of the glory of God. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And so Walt realized, like, how can I continue to buy into this ideology that says I'm good because of my light skin when all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God? So, so you see that, that biblical doctrine of sin, the universality of sin, swings like a wrecking ball through far-right ideologies and far-left ideologies. On the far-left, it would be easy to just blame everything on the cops and the capitalists and, and the white man. And along comes Romans 3 and smashes through it. All have sinned, all need redemption, all need grace. On the right, let's blame everything on, on minorities. And along comes Romans 3.23 like a wrecking ball and shatters it to bits. All have sinned, so we all need redemption. Amen? And then we take on this new identity in Christ, which again, that makes us family. So there's another distinction between the two. Uh, another point of contrast between social justice A and social justice B is that social justice B tends to, whereas social justice A starts, like Perkins said, with the godhood of God, Social justice B would have us bow down to idols. Let me just briefly point out three of the most common idols you find in social justice B. The first one is the false god of self, the false god of self, where justice is defined as I am sovereign, I'm in charge, I define the meaning of my identity, I define the meaning of my biology, I am captain of my own soul, and king of my own castle, queen of my own castle, I'm in charge. And if you question my self-chosen identity, you're the oppressor, and you need to be canceled. 82% of Americans, according to a recent Barna poll, believe they were asked, what's the meaning of life? And 82% said that the, the point of life is to make yourself happy, 82%. So if you think of the famous uh, Westminster Catechism that starts with that question, what is the chief end of man? What's the purpose? What's the point? Why are we here? So as a theology professor, I'm going to put you on the spot. A little Bible trivia here. Uh, see who's going to earn some extra credit today. What is the chief end of man? Westminster Catechism question one. The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That's it. That is the deepest, if you peel all the way, all the layers of the onion away and get to the core, that's the chief reason you are on planet Earth, to glorify God and enjoy him forever, amen? 
Well, 82% of Americans have essentially, according to this poll, said the chief end of man is to glorify myself and enjoy myself forever. 84% of Americans, according to the same study, said the best way to be happy is to follow your own desires. So you get this sort of false gospel of be true to yourself, hashtag follow your heart, hashtag authenticity, hashtag YOLO. It's all about obeying your three best friends, me, myself, and I. The idol of self. Over 90% of Americans said that to find the answers and to find your happiness, you look within for answers. So let me just <laughs> save you all the suspense uh, because I've tried to look within for answers before. That's not where the answers are. That's where the problems are, right? I I've looked in here before. It it's pretty unimpressive compared with looking up and beholding a sovereign, triune, gracious, glorious, loving God. And so this struck me, uh, this was a little over a month ago, uh, I play a game with my kids where if they're watching something, uh, maybe the latest Disney movie or whatever, we play a game called Spot the Lie, Spot the Lie. So if they see something false or unbiblical, if they can point it out and explain to me why it's false, they get a dollar. Uh, and they're getting so good at it, I'm gonna be living in a cardboard box in the next couple of years. Um, so this was about a month ago, and our uh, seven-year-old Holland, oh no, she's 10. Seven-year-old is Harlow, gotta keep them all straight here. Uh, our 10-year-old Holland, who we call Dutchy for short, little Dutchy, comes running downstairs and she says, Daddy, you owe me a dollar. I said, why, what, what'd you find? She said, I was watching this commercial, it was for some new fairy, pixie, princess, unicorn, whatever. And she said, the commercial told me to be true to myself and follow my heart. And I said, okay, well, go on, continue. Why is that, why is that a lie? And these were her exact words. I remember them verbatim because it's one of those few moments in parenting when the clouds part and God's like, oh, angelic choir singing with reverb. She said, I don't want to follow my heart because my heart's fallen. I want to follow God's heart. No, just like, oh, I love you so much. And just pulled her into my arms as one of those proud theologian daddy moments. Uh, but, but we need to understand that one of the marks of social justice B is it's premised on the lie that we get to define ourselves. And I would argue that it's not just a lie, it's a pernicious lie, it's a mean lie, it's a cruel lie because telling little kids you get to define yourself, puts the weight, a God-sized weight on their shoulders. Because think about it this way. Creating an identity and then sustaining that identity meaningfully over time is a God-sized task. It's a creator, not a creature-sized task. God, because he's sovereign, God, because he's omnipotent, has the authority the skill, the wisdom, the power to form us, to author our lives, to define us and sustain us and grow us over time. So when we tell little ones, be true to yourself and follow your heart, if we decode that, what we're saying is play God 
pretend you're sovereign. And I see it in my ministry over the years how people buckle under the weight of that impossible pressure because God is so much better at being God than we are, amen? Let me just close with, with one brief story on that. Um, again, obviously there's much more to say, but if I said it all, we'd be here until next year. Um, this is when Holland was four. Uh, so six years ago, I'm sitting at the kitchen table typing out some article that no one would read. Uh, Holland is propped up in front of the TV watching a, a Disney short called uh, Small Potatoes. And they're just these little like three minute cartoons and they all have like a little catchy song. And so this particular episode had this like punk rock anthem of these little animated potatoes speaking in cute British accents, playing this punk song, we're all potatoes at heart. And every episode ends with the moral of the story. And so I'm sort of half listening and typing away and it gets to the cutest potato of all who looks into the camera and says, there's no right or wrong way to do anything, children. Do what you want. And it cuts to the credits. Like the moral of the story was that there's no moral to any story. Be your own author. Create your own reality. Which, by the way, just yesterday when I flew in from California, turned on the Olympics, there was an Oculus ad, and I actually wrote it into my phone to get the direct quote. It says, create your own reality. And then two seconds later was a, uh, NBC ad that said, focus on yourself. So a lot of the social justice beat is cramming this message of be your own God, which I wish I had more time to unpack it, but it's the same old lie from Genesis 3. It's exactly what the serpent was up to. Has God really said, do you want to be like God, knowing good and evil? Do you want to be the one who's in charge? Do you want to be sovereign? The forces we're dealing with right now in culture are much deeper than politics. There's spiritual forces, and as Christians, we need to stand, like Scripture says, Jeremiah 7, not merely execute justice, but truly execute justice. I will just briefly conclude that story after I hear this potato telling my three-year-old to, there's no right or wrong. I quickly rose from my seat, did a dive roll into the living room, grabbed the clicker, turned off the TV, and gave her a five-hour lecture on God's authority and <laughs> the Ten Commandments and, and got her all straightened out. Let me pray for us. Uh, great God, you are just. You are holy. You are righteous. You are good. Help us as a church community to reflect that justice outward. Help us to embody it in the way we do everyday life. I pray that as this congregation um, moves into so the rest of the year and into next year, um, that you would just open up doors for this community to do real justice in a way that the culture just looks and says, wow, what is going on there? I pray that you would safeguard us from the counterfeit visions of justice that are sweeping through the culture, that are sweeping through so many churches. Help us to be loving and discerning. And above all, may you be glorified. Because that, after all, is the chief end of man, 
It's the chief end of me. It's the chief end of us. It's the chief end of this church to glorify and enjoy you forever. We pray all this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you. Amen. Hey, would you join me in thanking Thaddeus for coming and speaking? Thank you so much.